Mark 2, we're going to start verse 23, Colin. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some ears of corn. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all that he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him, for he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, They fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boagines, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons he is driving out demons. 
So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first, first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked round at those seated in a circle round him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Pick up at the beginning of chapter four. So again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered round him was so large that he got into a boat and sat, and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables. And in his teaching said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. And then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And when he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. And he told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. So that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people like seed along the path where the word is sown. Soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes, because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. He said to them, do you bring in a lamp and put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed. And whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to, ears to hear, let them hear. 
Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And even more, whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have, will be taken from them. And he also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day. Whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces corn, first the stalk, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. And as soon as the corn is ripe, he puts a sickle to it, because the harvest has come. And again he said, what shall we say that the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. That day, when evening came, he, says to, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. And a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. And the disciples woke him and said, teacher, don't you care if we drown? And he got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Let's pray. Father God, please open your word to us by your spirit. Please speak to our hearts. Lord, please open our hearts for understanding but change our wills, Lord. Change our minds, Lord. Bring us to repentance, Lord, so that something changes today. And we walk more closely with you as a result of meeting with your son in your word. And we ask it in his name. Amen. So we're going to concentrate. We'll, we'll speak a little bit about the rest of the passage, but we're going to concentrate on the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. So if you want to have that open, that's on page 1004 uh, in the Bible in front of you. And it's a passage about the Sabbath. And I wonder, how do you feel about Sabbath keeping? How do you feel about keeping one day separate for the Lord? And you'll notice the word in red. The word in red is on the word search. And the word search is on the sermon notes. They're on the windowsills if you want to pick one up. How do you feel about keeping one day separate, holy, that is, to the Lord? Is it a chore? Is it a chore for you, or is it a delight for you, or is it a mixture of the two? What should it be? Or put it a slightly different way, is Sunday for you life-giving or life-sapping? Or put it another way, what would it take for Sabbath-keeping to be a joy for you? What would it take for Sabbath-keeping to be a joy for you? 
Well, let's look at this passage and see what happens with Jesus and his teaching on the Sabbath. First, we see him in the cornfields. Um, and we see Jesus walking along with his disciples. And his, his, his disciples, got my teeth in backwards, his disciples begin to pick some ears uh, of corn. Uh, you, we read later on, didn't we, in that, if you noticed that there were times when Jesus and the disciples didn't have time to eat properly. Um, and his family thought they were nuts. Um, so maybe that's why the disciples are picking ears as they go along. And the Pharisees see this as unlawful. So the Pharisees, they didn't have any legal status. They had no official status in Israel. They weren't the Jewish secret police, which sometimes, I guess, is how we see them. They were more like a kind of religious sect crossed with a political pressure group. So they were kind of like the religious right. And in the same way that a, a pressure group or might scour a, a, a politician's history uh, for any mistakes, for any false words that they can use against them, that is kind of how the Pharisees are seeing Jesus. Or sections of the press might do the same. So the Pharisees, they see Jesus as an up-and-coming leader, and they see him as a threat. And so, as it were, they want to look through his internet history to see if there's anything they can use against him. Oh, of course, they didn't have the internet, and they couldn't do that. So they're looking at him and, and his behavior, and they're actively looking for a mistake, and they think that they found it. Because according to their traditions, there were 39 classes of work that profaned the Sabbath. 39 classes of things, not 39 things, 39 classes of things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, the Jewish Saturday, which was a day of, of being kept for no work. Some that we might expect, you were not allowed to plough, you couldn't go hunting, you couldn't do any butchering. But some that we might not, you weren't allowed to tie or loosen certain kinds of knots. It wasn't all kinds of knots, it was just certain types of knots. You couldn't sew more than one stitch. I guess that meant you could put a kind of emergency in something, but you couldn't make a garment. You couldn't write more than one letter. And by those standards, you couldn't walk more than 1,999 steps, which someone reckons is about 800 meters on the Sabbath. And presumably, Jesus and his disciples have gone more than that, but the disciples, uh, sorry, the Pharisees, they don't comment on that. Um, I guess that's probably slightly harder to prove. You were, on an ordinary day, if you walked through your neighbor's field, you were allowed to kind of pick corn out of his grain, but you weren't allowed to get a sickle out. Um, that would be kind of, you know, I like these kind of rules. You weren't allowed to take a sickle to it because that's like harvesting his grain. But you were allowed to pick, if you were on a walk, you were allowed to pick a few ears. But not, not on the Sabbath. Because uh, the Pharisees see that as reaping. That's work. Not allowed to do that on the Sabbath. And they see this as an, as an attack on the root of their very identity. Two key markers uh, of Jewishness were circumcision and the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath um, holy. And Jesus, they think, are struck at the very heart of what it means to be Jewish. It's a little bit like, you know, sometimes um, in, in a football team or an athletics team these days, people, um, countries draft in somebody from another country. Um, and then they discover you, you can't, they can't sing the national anthem. Um, and, and there's an outcry about it. They're not really, that's not really an English person or a British person. They've just been 
So it, there's a little bit of that kind of feeling about it. This is, he can't really be Jewish. He can't be the Messiah because he doesn't respect the Sabbath. And so they say to him, what you've done is unlawful. And, and Jesus refers to David in this interesting little comment. He cites King David as a precedent. Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry in need? He entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread. Actually, the priest, the high priest, gave him um, the consecrated bread. It wasn't like he ran in and nicked it. Um, he, he asked for it and he, was, and, and he was given it. But it was lawful only for priests to eat. So in the days when David had been anointed king by Samuel, but not yet enthroned as king, um, King Saul was on the throne. David was on the run. He was gathering support. He was awaiting his time. As the kind of Messiah king who was to come, his status and his need overruled the Sabbath law on that particular occasion. And what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying, I am the Messiah. I am the king in waiting. I'm the king who's been anointed. He's been baptized um, by John. Um, this is the next slide. I think, got nowhere to lay his head. He is gathering support. He is awaiting his time. In other words, as he'll kind of say later on, he's the Messiah. He's the son of David, who is also David's Lord. And as Messiah, as the son of man, he is Lord over the Sabbath. He is Lord even of the Sabbath because he is Messiah. He is God's king who has come. And Jesus says this. He says that, it's a great statement. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And that's an interesting clarification, I think, of, of, the, of the Sabbath rule. Jesus doesn't say Sabbath rule doesn't apply anymore. Nor does he say to them, you're right. You need to keep on applying this Sabbath rule the way you have done. He says it's not a straitjacket to grind people down and to keep them under control. It is a space, it is a place, it is a time for people to refresh and grow and meet with the Lord. It's a space, it's a gift for those people who are in a loving relationship with the Lord. So actually, in the midst of this, Jesus is saying, Sabbath cannot be separated from a relationship with the Lord. And the implication is that that relationship is through him because he is the Messiah, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Is that how you feel about Sundays? It's a gift. It's a gift for you to use and to enrich and refresh your relationship with the Lord. That's in the cornfield though. On a separate occasion in the synagogue, um, probably in Capernaum, um, there's another time when Jesus offends the, the Pharisees. He's already guilty in their eyes because he's guilty. If you look back even in chapters 1 and 2, we haven't got very far in. In their eyes, he's already guilty of blasphemy, befriending sinners. Um, he's an apostate from the law and now he's a Sabbath breaker. Well, we've only got to the end of chapter 2. So some of the Jews, presumably Pharisees, are actively looking um, for a cast iron charge to bring against Jesus. There's a question mark. Why is the man with the shriveled hand actually there? Uh, he might actually be a plant. He might be a deliberate setup 
to see what Jesus will do. But either way, even if he's there accidentally, there are some in the congregation whose minds are not on the law or on the worship. They're on, what is Jesus going to do, given that this man with a shriveled hand is here and he's been healing just about everybody? See, first aid was permissible on the Sabbath in their rules, again. If you, wanted, if you had to stop something getting worse, if somebody had a life-threatening injury, you could give them first aid, but you weren't allowed to cure somebody on the Sabbath because that was work. And the whole story kind of drips with irony. I think when you think about Peter, I don't know how you, you think about him, but he has a strong sense of the ironic. I wonder whether you kind of... Um, he. He's not a labourer, because they were kind of like self-employed fishermen. They, they, they caught fish and, and, and they sold fish. They kind of had their own business. I wonder whether you think of Peter as a kind of self-employed trucker or something like that. Does that give you a kind of picture of Jesus with a strong, ironic and slightly sarcastic sense of humour? Um, I think that would give you a, a bit of a picture of Peter who, who writes these things down or who Mark has written these things down for him. Because he writes these things with a great sense of irony. Jesus reads the intent of these people. And he says, which is lawful to, um, on the Sabbath to do good, to do evil, to save life, or to, to kill. Peter sees this ironic situation where Jesus is looking to heal somebody um, on the Sabbath. And because he's looking to do good on the Sabbath, the Pharisees are looking to harm him on the Sabbath, which is better to kind of plot a murder on the Sabbath or to heal a man with a shriveled hand. They've got these things completely confused um, and out of perspective with one another. And Jesus, he knows their hearts and he's distressed by their hard hearts. And if you're reading through Mark and um, if you're going to care, uh, pay attention as we go through Mark, one of the things you'll find is that hard hearts are the real enemy in Mark's gospel. Hard hearts are the real enemy in Mark's gospel. And hard hearts are constantly contrasted um, with faith. This is a question, do you have faith um, or do you um, harden your heart? And so Jesus says to the man with a shriveled hand, stretch out your hand. Um, and the man does. And his hand, as he brings it out, is, is healed. Presumably he's had it up his sleeve or in his garment quite probably. And then he puts his, puts his arm out. Uh, and it's healed. And it's, it's an act of faith. So one writer says, faith is not a private wager, but a public risk that Jesus is worthy of the trust. He's probably, he might be deeply self-conscious about this hand. He might be totally embarrassed about it. He might have been hiding this hand um, all, all his life. And Jesus says, hold it out. And there's a public risk involved in that. And he holds it out and he's healed. And because of that, the Pharisees and the Herodians, who were natural enemies, they band together to plot a murder of Jesus. What's this got for us? The question we're asking, I guess, uh, out of Mark is what do disciples do? Um, how do what does the life of discipleship look like? And the first thing is, obviously, it's a life of faith. Disciples are people who have 
exposed their most shameful places before Christ and asked him for healing. Okay, that's, that's a Christian. That's what you've done when you, when you became a Christian. You said to Jesus, I've got all this stuff. This stuff which brings me shame, this stuff which I can't change. And Jesus says, reach it out and, and, and bring it to me. And he says, ah, it'll be healed. You'll be changed. When he dies on the cross, he takes the punishment for all that stuff that brings you shame, that stuff that you've been hiding away. So if you're carrying shameful stuff, come and reach out your hand to Jesus today and he will take it and he will take it from you. That's what he died on the cross to do. And the resurrection proves that that sacrifice is accepted before God. Because the opposite response is to harden your heart like the Pharisees. So we treat the Pharisees like they're kind of pantomime villain, villains. The Pharisee comes on and we go, boo, you know, because the, the Pharisees have come on and, and we can boo about them and then feel better about ourselves. Well, that's not the point. The Pharisees are what you and I might become if we don't hold tightly to grace. Pharisees are what you and I become if we don't hold on tightly to the grace that Christ has offered. Pharisees are what happens when you harden your heart. And had a little experience this morning of just praying before the Lord. I'm just realizing there are bits of sin where I'll come before the Lord. And you realize, actually, I don't actually want to ask you for forgiveness for that. And then you think, oh my goodness, there are places in my heart where I'm either making excuses, or actually little places in my heart which I wouldn't bring before the Lord. And God says to me, no temptation has seized you except what is common to human beings. So that means the same is true of all of you as well. Where is that place? As you, as you go on in the Christian life, as you mature, um, sin becomes more and more subtle, and harder to spot. You've got to become more adept. Um, it's not the gross stuff that you thought it was. It's those little... Um, attitudes but where are those little hardening of the hearts I, I guess if, you, if you're not coming to the Lord at all in other words if confession isn't part of your regular prayer diet if you're not coming before the Lord and regularly confessing specific things then you haven't even started you haven't even started the Christian life um, and you've got a chunk of hardness um, which you haven't even begun. You haven't really actually got on the way yet. So let's assume that you are on the way and you are confessing uh, sin to the Lord when, when, you were, when you were aware of it. If you're not doing that at all, then please do, <laughs> do something urgent about it. Um, what are those little things 
So sometimes hardness is those things that you don't confess. And sometimes you don't confess things because you make an excuse. So those things where you are excusing yourself for um, are those places where you might be hardening those hearts. And, the, and hardening your heart is the thin end of the wedge of becoming a Pharisee. So it might be you say, oh, I had a drink before I came out because I'm an anxious kind of person. And I need a bit of Dutch courage before I come out on a Sunday morning. Maybe you, maybe you are an anxious kind of person. Maybe that's not the best way uh, to sort it out. But actually, that's not the problem. The problem is that you've excused it. You made an excuse. Or maybe you think, I, I, don't, uh, I, I look at inappropriate images because my wife or my husband is not as nice to me as, as I think they ought to be. You've got a sin problem, but it's not a problem that can't be forgiven. It's not a problem that can be fixed, but the beginning of it is you have to stop making an excuse for it. When you make an excuse, you're, hard, you're hardening your heart. When you harden your heart, you're on your way to becoming a Pharisee. Don't need to watch my speech when I come into church this morning. It's just my culture. It's just who I am. Or it's just my age. I'm old enough. I can say what I like. Or it's just my character. Um, I'm an allowed and abrasive kind of person. Well, your character needs to be more like Christ. But the problem is you the excuse. When you make an excuse, you're hardening your heart. When you're hardening your heart, you're a Pharisee. I'm in an inappropriate relationship because there aren't enough Christian partners out there for me. When you make an excuse, you know what happens. I don't actually need to be in church because I need to protect myself, my job, and my family. Might be true, might not be true. But where you make an excuse rather than confess, your heart gets a little bit harder and you become, you're on your way to wearing the big P. So disciples bring their embarrassing stuff and it can be, it doesn't matter how embarrassing it is, they bring it and they lay it out before Jesus for his healing and his forgiveness. They don't make excuses. What I think we should read out of this too is, that is about keeping the Sabbath out of, out of love and joy. The, Phari the Pharisees are sort of keeping the Sabbath, but of course they're not. They're, they're keeping the Sabbath rules. They've laid it out in a load of rules, but there's no relationship. And so they're wrong. But Jesus doesn't say you just can't, you doesn't say equally, don't keep the Sabbath. He says keep the Sabbath out of, out of love and joy and willingness because you want to, not because you must. And that's the irony of law, of moral law and of the law of Moses. It tells us what to do, but if you only do what it tells you to do because it tells you to do it, then you're wrong. Do I need to say that again? The law tells you what to do, but if you only do it because the law tells you to do it, then you're wrong. And you're out of relationship. 
The law tells you what to do it, tells you what to do, and you do it out of love and willingness and because you want to, because of what Jesus has done for you. So being called to the Sabbath, it's not like being told to go and wash the dishes. It's like being invited out to a, a meal with friends at a smart restaurant. And you say, why does it have to be Sunday? And you say, seven o'clock is ridiculously early. And you say, they didn't give me a choice of restaurant. And they say, um, I hate it when other people tell me what to do. You don't say that when you're being given uh, an invitation to something really good, uh, especially when it's a slap-up meal. Our sinful hearts don't like our behavior being prescribed. But law is just a reminder. It's a reminder of what the Holy Spirit should be doing in your heart anyway. If the Holy Spirit's not doing anything in your heart, you're not a Christian. And law, in some ways, is the power cable that connects you to the power of God. The God, God uses the law to empower you. When he reminds you with it, he also empowers you by the Holy Spirit to do it. Do you get that? So law, in a sense, is like a power cable. It doesn't just tell you what to do, it empowers you to do it. And a couple of small things. Form new spiritual families. Did you see that? Maybe you didn't pick that up. Jesus' family come to him and say, he's not, he's not eating properly. He's not eating properly. We need to bring him home. <clears throat> That's a very motherly thing to do, isn't it? He's not eating properly. I need to bring him home. And Jesus says, um, what does he say? Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. What do disciples do? They form new families. We're in a family of God um, together. What do disciples do? We haven't got time to go into this, but they, uh, they go deeper into the scriptures. There are lots of people hearing these parables and Jesus says, whoever has an ear, let, let him hear. And then when they're on their own, he, he tells them the, the inside track. Disciples are people who are on the inside track. You've heard about Jesus. You've heard enough of the gospel. You've responded to the gospel. You're on the inside now. Um, pay attention what Jesus says. Disciples are people who go deeper with the scriptures. And of course, <clears throat> disciples are people, it's implicit, but it's actually implicit through all of, my, of Mark's gospel. Disciples are people who are walking with Jesus. In other words, Jesus is there with them in, in, in everyday life. Um, you see that? And so um, Jesus has called them uh, and they followed the, him on this journey and Jesus then is with them. So much so that, that when they're in a storm, uh, the famous story, uh, Jesus calms the storm and they're amazed. And I just think that for those of you who are in trouble, and we've all been through trouble in, in the last couple of years, but when it's trouble walked through with Jesus, we also get revelation. Disciples have this revelation that here is Jesus who is king over the storm. When you walk with Jesus through trouble, you get revelation. You see that Jesus is king, king over the storm. So really, there's a bunch of things you can think about doing here, but I want to read and finish, just read you a chunk out of Isaiah um, 58, and then we'll respond in song. And that is called the Sabbath of Delight. 
That's your application. There are a bunch of other things we've talked about you might want to pick up on this final slide. Call the Sabbath a delight. Um, this is Isaiah speaking to Israel. Uh, they're words, words of condemnation. Um, and, and God telling them the reason actually they're going to be taken into exile. Why their church, as it were, is going to cease to exist for a while. And the Lord says to them this, shout it aloud, don't hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out, they seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and they seem eager for God to come near to them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you've not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is, it, is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? And when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of impression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy needs of the oppressed, and then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden. That's like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and raise up the age-old foundations. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath, not from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight on the Lord's holy day honourable, and if you honour it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord and I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen.